Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. A little bit of housekeeping. I've mentioned it several times now, but I'll mention it again. I have uh, launched a personally branded site, jasonperera.ca. Please, uh, if you listen to this podcast, please sign up because we are going to try to stay in contact with you and pump out more awesome information and awesome content to you as much as possible. So that's again, jasonperera.ca. Second piece of information, I've also launched a second podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned it to date, but that is the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast, uh, more core to what I do as opposed to technology. So if it's of interest to you or anyone you know, please be sure to check it out. On to today's show. So today on the show, I have Awadamir and Neil Sheehan of Sellant. Sellant is a consultant to large financial and Fortune 500 institutions that deals with how they can better adapt to technological challenges facing them today. And with that, here's my interview with Neil and Awad. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, pleasure's all ours. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately and unfortunately, everybody has missed out on about half an hour of just ranting about the industry and how things are going to change. You might have found that interesting, but we'll, we'll try to keep it less controversial for this part of the conversation. Uh, all right. So a lot of Neil of Sellant. Tell us about Sellant. Either one of you. <laughs> yeah. So so Sellant is a technology research and advisory firm that's a subsidiary of uh, Oliver Wyman, which is a global management consulting firm. So as since we do uh, technology research and advisory, mostly uh, work for financial services clients. So most of our clients are financial institutions. So I myself, and based out of the New York office, and you'll sort of hear from Neil shortly, he's based out of Boston, but really we're like a global research and advisory firm that produces reports and, and does conducts consulting for our uh, clients. That, yeah, the only thing I'll add there is that we do have a um, kind of software application on our website for that's called Vendor Match, where vendors can go on and put their applications on there, put you know a demo, a white sheet. Um, any type of information on facts on the product so that our clients can use it to help themselves in their process of selecting, figuring out what's out there. And we do have some subscriptions on that, which is newer for the firm. But as we do study finance, financial technology, we want to make sure we practice it as well. So we kind of have invested ourselves in the development of our own product to help our clients kind of facilitate their needs. Well, they must love that resource because God knows it gets more and more complex. So had Michael Kitsis on for episode 100. And of course, uh, for those of you familiar with it, he publishes what he calls the Kitsis Cloud of FinTech companies, which is just a bunch of logos for different segments of the market. And originally it was just intended to help people navigate. And now it's become the punchline of jokes as to look how complicated this all is. And it's, uh, yeah, it can be a little overwhelming. So tell me about why Sellant was basically created as an offshoot of Oliver Wyman. Was it just so much specific demand within one sector of the economy or what happened there? So I'm actually fairly new, but this goes way back, I think, 10 okay. years or so. It was acquired um, okay. as, as sort of a research hub that could sort of sit there and all over Wyman and be a specialized team that could cater to a very specific area of financial services technology. Excellent. And so Oliver Wyman has different sort of branches of specialized teams. And so we're obviously one of them. Uh, Neil, maybe you can add more to how this Yeah, started. well, we hit 21 years. So 20 years was last year. But like you said, it was acquired in Oliver Wyman looking for the specialists. We do have, a, I would say, a large presence in the insurance side. And that has been, you know, more traction over the years. But for now, you know, we've expanded to banking and wealth management, asset management, uh, risk. And so it, it kind of, it's exciting to see it grow um, as the market, like you mentioned, with all the fintech applications coming out, Absolutely. we try to grow and, and make sure that we can cover what our clients truly need. 
So the only joke when I hear 21 years old, I think is, so how many of those applications are you still using today? <laughs> uh, these companies, which is most of them. So before we get to that and I start beating up on large institutions, I mean, this is, this is an interesting conversation. We're not talking with, uh, with, with startups today. We're talking with company, with you guys who basically consult in and, and do also kinds of, and do all kinds of thought leadership stuff for larger institutions. So you have a lot of experience with large companies, large financial players. And luckily, one of you is more front-end, one of you is more back-end development. So yeah. I have both perspectives today. <laughs> so uh, a lot in general, we started a conversation because you have uh, quite a background in, okay, let's call it thought leadership around AI and voice response. Let's talk about what you've seen in terms of development thus far, and then we'll get into you know where we think we can go and, and how what's succeeded and what's failed. So it's a big open-ended question, but yeah, I'll let you yeah. start. Well, I think we should probably just start by defining what we mean by voice. You know, it mm -hmm. could... Some people think of it as voice authentication. Some people think of it as just talking. In this context, it's obviously just speaking to having a conversation that is non-text-based with a virtual assistant. And that could be over like any channel, like your wearable, your smartphone, smart speaker devices. Mm -hmm. And heck, it can even be to your own fridge. You can talk to it nowadays. So, so mm -hmm. I hear. So really, it's about the thing that's so unique about voice is unlike desktop, mobile computing, it's an interface that the user has to learn. So voice kind of flips that around where it's the natural language processor just well, just, voice is kind of the original human interface, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. just it's how, you know, <laughs> yeah. sound is how we yeah. originally all started communicating as small children, right? So it makes sense. So it's up to, it's up to the virtual assistant to interpret you. The, the ideal state is one where you don't have to alter your behavior to sort of interact with this thing. And so that's the ideal state that it's... We're it's, not there yet? It's, I don't think we're quite there. I mean, yeah, there are... Anyone who uses Siri knows we're not quite there. Exactly. I mean, when you, <laughs> when you talk to your watch, I, I'm sure there are sort of cues in your own head where you know that you, there are certain things you can and can't say, right? I pace myself versus... Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. and you know, when, when, when it was first debuted, I believe in 2011, 2000... Yeah. iPhone 4S, whenever that came out. <laughs> I remember it as iPhone 4 Steve and he passed away in 2011. So mm, I think yes. it was 2011. Still my favorite. The sandwich, the, the ice cream sandwich one. I still think that was the best design. No, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. Although, although terrible for getting a radio signal out of. <laughs> this is a little off, but I heard it's coming back for the next. They've time. been talking about that, yeah. <laughs> although hopefully Antenna Gate will not happen again. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, when when it first debuted, it was the first sort of commercially viable example of a virtual assistant that everyone sort of got their hands on. You did sort of have to pace yourself, and you did. There were sort of a limited number of ways you can actually talk to it. Now, you still have to pace yourself in a limited number of ways that you talk to it, but there are other assistants that are mm -hmm. doing a far better job at, at, uh, at interpreting you. And so, obviously, like I said, Google have far better automatic speech detect recognition and, and voice recognition than, than, than Siri does, and it's become a lot much more natural to interact with these things. So what, how you're starting to see this transpire in like the business side of things is companies are taking notice that users are more and more starting to interact with, with, with virtual assistants, and they think that potentially there could be a future where voice is the next mm. platform for computing as desktop, mobile, yeah. and sort of voice being the next evolution. I'm skeptical of that, and I'm sure... Just I think I'm, I'm a bit more of a believer in it, just not the way people think it is. It's not, at this conversation previously, is about being part of an omni-channel of distribution. So for example, I can make a statement or a comment to my smart speaker and that could queue up whatever I need to do on my smart TV or push it out to my phone, right? To date, I already have, I mean, as someone who's wired his entire house and I have all three smart speakers and I <laughs> am very entrenched in the iPhone ecosystem, I start talking to my smart speaker and it seems like all my other devices know to shut up and let the smart speaker do the work, right? I think there's two different things. I think this kind of ambient push to the edge interface is something that is, yes, going to be a part of a larger play. But I also think, and we discussed this when we first talked, 
how I've talked about this previously, this is a generational shift in thinking, right? Like we are used to the interface being visually in front of us. My kids are not. My kids, uh, you know, the most extreme example is my daughter at somewhere around 18 months, basically pushing on the button on my watch, leaning into it and going, blah, 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 blah. And I just stopped yeah. in shock and awe saying, okay, this is normal to her. She's growing right. up in a world where this is normal and everybody else in, you know, my parents' generation thinks like, ah, oh, this is just new fangled tech stuff I'm never going to accept, right? Yeah. So it's, it's one of these things where just like now we have digital natives versus non-digital natives, people who understand who grew up on the internet and didn't, we're going to have voice response natives. Right. That's, that's actually a very interesting thought you bring up. Our, I always question like you know the day-to-day -day stuff asking for the weather asking for the time like people yep. are obviously going to do very easily it's far more convenient doing Absolutely. it over voice than over your phone but what about some of the more complex inquiries like td ameritrade for instance it actually is the only institution that's enabled the ability to execute full-on trades using voice yeah there's a level of trust that generations to get over before that exactly. right yeah and an authentication issue that we're not there yet right exactly that's also another issue it's, it's not completely seamless because you still need to authenticate through the, yeah. the alexa app but when i ask them like how how adoption has been um, since you introduced it and the answer has been very low. Where does it round up to? <laughs> I, I, I don't know this for sure. I'd probably yeah. say it's less than like 5%. I think it's something like that. It's gonna, people are going to be nervous, right? I mean, even, even Amazon's not fully in this, right? Like they... If you ask, if you basically say, Amazon, I need toilet paper, I'm going to say Amazon's opposed to Alexa, so I don't trigger everybody's phone. No, I just did it. <laughs> Certain podcasts I know have different code words for these things, but I don't have one yet. So you you say that it needs you need more toilet paper, it will select toilet paper, but put it in your basket. It will not actually execute the transaction. You right. still got to go in and do it, mm -hmm. right? And I think these are the interim steps, right? And yeah, I mean, let's put it this way. I always use the example of, hey, I'm not going to work on spreadsheets on my phone, right? It's hard enough for me to work on my tablet. Yeah, yeah, I would exactly. rather work with a mouse and a keyboard, yeah. right? So as we move up the level of complexity of interface, yeah, you're going to choose traditional methodologies. But you're right. I think right now we're at the very simple use cases of weather and news and play this song, right? That's the low-hanging fruit. Well, for us, I think like our generation is definitely more used to having a graphical UI. Absolutely. And so my question to you is, you know, when you see your daughter sort of interact with voice and, and you know, not really care if there's a GUI or anything like that. Do you think that's like a generational hump? That's I think so. I mean, so? she's two and a half years old now, and she knows how to tell. I'm always cautious. I always stop myself. She knows how to tell Siri how mm -hmm. to play Baby Shark. Right, like, yeah, you know, it's you know, my what is son. Baby shark? Huh? What is baby shark? Oh. You don't have children. You don't have children. Oh my god. We, we'll play it for him after. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll totally play it for him after. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> so, back. so baby shark is the number one. You know, this is why so many different uh, kids songs come up my recommended list on iTunes is because my kids get into it. So yeah, I think it is. It is generational in terms, of, and I think those those kids will grow up expecting that by default do so much more than we do right now, and that's what's going to test the boundaries. But right now, like this is the early inning of the early innings like this is right. this is still like the lowest possible common denominator use case we can think of so i'm excited to see where it'll go but I, I actually don't think it grows up in an ecosystem that's on its own right i mean there's so much potential behind ar and so many companies running as fast as they can to develop yeah. glasses that are fashionable exactly. wearable and have battery life right yeah if they crack that like well that's kind of the hybrid but at the same time you're not going to be out there doing, you're probably not going to be out there living the existence of, what was that movie? Um, Minority Report, swiping right, the hands yeah, around. Yeah. It's going to be voice response. Yeah. Well, we have a colleague who wrote um, a recent research paper on virtual reality. 
And, it, and it's fun when we do research. I always, you know, we chat amongst ourselves to kind of get each other's opinion on what it's, you know, what's happening. And virtual reality is interesting, right? Like if I'm a financial advisor, someone, a couple can come in, I can put these on and we can plan out their whole lives ahead of them. Yep. And so it's that, is someone who's right now in our generation going to jump into that? Probably not. No. But it's you a can long start, way from that Exactly. It's a too, long right? way, but to kind of get that thinking is is exciting about but that's industry. interesting because there are like there are psychological profiles that have been our reports that have been done where you know when you show people pictures of themselves age it's more easier for them to get the mindset of what that they look like at that time in, in, in life right yeah. and you wonder if you know a, a vr tool is the tool for basically being able to facilitate those conversations right so it's you know all exciting we're, we're gonna go crazy on this one it's gonna be, it's gonna be wild <laughs> wild stuff talking about the reality versus the future of this so it's you know i think the the honest truth is we just don't know where it goes at this point i think it's a little bit foolish for us to think it is i mean i think it's yeah. i'm not gonna say it's my kids generation to figure this figures this out along the way but they're gonna be the ones that push it along the way i think you brought up an interesting point with they are and i discuss this in one of my reports as well like by the time voice achieves a level of maturity that we envision it to be today, I think AR will sort of take over that and we will have sort of this ubiquitous like graphical user interface and the ability to talk to it and call upon mm. it whenever and wherever we are. And so like, I don't think we'll ever be in like, this is the reason I'm skeptical of voice, but because I think by the time it gets there, uh, we'll have AR, which is essentially like a, yeah. a mobile phone replacement, which is, I think the next true platform of mobile computing is. But I, I think that they're paired, right? I think that the interface exactly. is not is not physical with AR. The interface is verbal with AR. Yeah, exactly. Right? So I think yeah. the, the killer use case for voice response is most definitely exactly. AR. However, I don't think everybody necessarily wants to wear glasses all day. <laughs> sure. As someone who wears glasses half the time. <laughs> So let's talk about some of the use cases you've seen. So you said, okay, so TD Ameritrade's got that trading. Yeah, seems, so that seems mean, pretty bold to me. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I just did a slide on this uh, for a sound roundtable we have coming up in Toronto. Which I'll be at tomorrow. Yep. This is not an advertisement. This is an invitation. It's only, too late. So. This is going to air weeks later. <laughs> so in the Canadian landscape, when it comes to the banks, there's just sort of just dip their toes in. Like uh, TD and BMO have very, very basic offerings on Alexa. You just do things like that are not even account specific things like just mm -hmm. ask about, you know, the FX rate, where's, where are your ATMs like, you know, mm -hmm. and, and there's some good one, good use cases, like getting basic customer support, like how do I activate my, my credit card, yeah. for instance. So that's good. Problem with that is, however, I don't think I've seen any updates on the marketplace with that. There've been no new capabilities added that I know of in the well, last I'm sure they're seeing very little user adoption on exactly. that. Exactly, that's exactly what it is. Well, and this yeah. is one of the, um, the issues I do have with these speakers is the discovery aspect. I'm sorry, I hate the Alexa app. Like, I, I think it's a pain in the butt to find skills. Well, when does that. Amazon ever make UI that's good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how many people can build a, a wonderful a uh, wonderful UI off of AWS, but for some reason, yeah, Amazon's know, not one of those companies. And, and you know, people believe Amazon's on top of this. So I, I myself, as a personal opinion, I don't think they're good at, 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 pro, at product design, in, in my personal opinion. I'm going to generally agree with you on that. Yeah. And it's, 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 you know, it's painful that I think if Apple really wanted to commit themselves to the HomePod and, you know, basically really push that, that agenda, they could set the standard for figuring out how these things all come together. How do you, I mean, you can't, you have to discover skills in a voice response uh, environment at this point. You're still yeah. going to basically look online for these things. I mean, unless it should be, I mean, the honest truth is it should be seamless. I buy a smart lock, you know, it gets tied in the home kit and I don't have to do anything. Yeah. And that's what it is right. with my, current setup right now. Don't try to hack my smart lock. <laughs> anyway, so 
So it's interesting. So the other thing too is like, how much of this is a chicken and egg scenario, right? Because we're also dealing with the issue of, you know, it'd be really cool for me to, I got to pay my brother 50 bucks for the trip we're just on. I still owe him just to be able to say, hey, Shlomo, which is, I'm borrowing that term from uh, from this week in, in uh, tech. Hey, Shlomo, uh, send, you know, my bro 50 bucks, right? From this account, right? And just have it executed. That would be lovely, right? Mm-hmm, it would be, right. be a wonderful environment. Yeah. But, you know, we're not doing that. And a big part of that is security. I mean, right. it's TD Ameritrade, uh, right. trade, you know, maybe mishearing me say, you buy 50 shares of Tesla. I hope you all <laughs> tell Alexa to shut up now. Um, you <laughs> or know, your daughter going yeah, on and exactly, saying, right? <laughs> send like, me money. But like, you know, between a combination, you know, we've talked about this concept before of the cloud of authentication, right? So you have, you know, you, know, you have my voice print, that's fine. But I'm also next to the speaker wearing my smartwatch and that's been activated for a while. And yeah. my phone is also in the house as well. You know, between those three different data points, the probability of it being me is pretty significantly high, right? Yeah. Versus if, you know, the phone is at work and my watch wasn't turned on all day and, you know, you're just hearing my voice print, right? That could be a recording for all you know. Yeah. So another good use case is RBC was actually, I think, the first bank. It is a first bank to integrate like natively with Siri. So I think mm-hmm. it's probably the most advanced consumer facing voice example as far as Canadian banking goes, where you're able to actually monitor your transactions and mm-hmm. make bill payments and se- conduct e-transfers to your friends and relatives and stuff. Interesting. So, but people have to discover it's there. Well, you absolutely need multi-factor authentication with that. Oh, God, yes. Well, right? and, and Siri puts that out there, too, that you can you can do these things, or RBC will put that out Well, they even do that with HomeKit. Like, if I tell it to open my garage door, and it's not unlocked, like, you have to unlock your phone first. I'm like, okay, fair play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so do you also have the HomePod as well? Or do you just I do. Inter- okay. I do. I have all three smart speakers. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I had, so I bought the Alexa when it first came out, yeah. then the HomeKit, the HomePod came out. And I wasn't going to buy the Google. Then Google basically, because I'm on Google One Care. Yeah, they basically like, so pay five bucks for shipping and it's yours. I'm like, how do I say no to that? <laughs> so now now my kids have fun playing with different ones for different things. Do you see HomePod as like a virtual assistant machine or do you actually just use it to play music? Like, I think um, they're afraid to sort of test some of the more advanced. I would say they've been good at a couple of things in my experience. So it is most certainly the best quality speaker that there is. So it is my go-to music player because I am HomeKit wired. It is a valuable tool with HomeKit for unlocking doors, for doing certain things. It doesn't, still waiting for Ring to fully integrate with uh, with that that's, there's a lawsuit happening about that one because they, I don't know if you saw that, they tweeted that they were going to integrate the HomeKit and they got bought out by Amazon. Right. And it's been all two years. Right. And yeah, it's now they've, they've recently agreed to a, a common protocol. So hopefully that'll fix it. But I mean, the ability to turn on my alarm system with voice would be nice and handy as opposed to punching in my code. Right? right. So I'm getting more functionality, I think, about than the average user, but I'm not the average user. Right. I think the one I get the least amount of, I mean, to me, it's become Google, you're awesome at search. You know, yeah. Amazon, you're awesome at like random jokes for my kids <laughs> and like ordering things baby shark, my, yeah, baby yeah. shark and ordering yeah. things into my um, into my into my basket. And it actually will integrate. It's, it's actually a functionality in the States where it will integrate the speakers into the security system. So if it hears a break of, a, of glass while the alarm is on, it will really? basically. Yeah. So there's a bunch of cool functionality, but no one's found the killer app for this yet. Like mm-hmm. it's all a bunch of really cool out there stuff. And the integration of Alexa into things like showers, which I think is bizarre, uh, yeah. fridges and microwaves like. I mean, maybe one day once we actually crack this fully, but it's too early. Yeah, no, they certainly have the most diverse marketplace. They have like some 70,000 plus Alexa scales on it. And I think most of it was just experimental. It's to a land see. grab. They want to they own that space. And they still have the education piece, right? Of how to how teach you how to do it, right? Well, and and, and your daughter's generation, it's probably going to be easier for them to do that. Well, they default to, it should do this, right? Like I, de- you know, like so many people default to, why can't I do this on my phone instantaneously, right? Like the millennial generation, like why do I have to go through all this paperwork? Why can't I just do this on my phone, right? right. Like, 
that's their default is the phone. My daughter's generation is going to be my default is my voice. Yeah, right. just ask it. That's Whatever it. you're thinking, just, just ask assume. it. Whereas I don't, you know, I don't think to ask it. Right. Whereas for us, we're like, okay, we need to get this done through a bank. I can go to my phone, open this app, or like call this number and talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. For them, it'll just be seamless. Which is just like, oh, let me just ask my smart speaker. Let me just ask my watch. So, how many institutions are you seeing actually experiment with this at this point? In Canada, relatively, like I'd say, all the major banks are experimenting with it. In the U.S., um, what's that look in like? the U.S., definitely all of them are deep in the nose with this. So for yeah. instance, Bank of America, I mean, everyone talks about Erica, their their virtual assistant that's yeah. integrated with multiple functionalities within their mobile app. So it's, you can, you can, you know, chat with it with yeah. via text and you can talk to it. And they reported they have like some 13% of interactions are completely through voice. Really? Erica. She's, she's pretty advanced. And then Capital One has a few virtual assistants that are pretty good too. You can, you can monitor your transactions and sort of, you know, just uh, send, transfer money, but it's also like a, I believe it's called Eno. It actually monitors your spending and, and, and identifies anomalies and potential fraudulent activity and yeah. sort of pings you. And I believe there's also a use case where it's monitoring your spending and, and reconciling it with your goals and sort of trying to encourage better behavior at the same time. So these virtual assistants, they're not just reactive, they're also proactive in the US. One should hope you got that much computing, exactly. that much data, exactly. you should be getting ahead of stuff. And then even even the TD Ameritrade one, it's 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 uh, as far as wealth goes, it's a it's a pretty good example. Other sort of firms in the wealth space, like they're not doing anything close to what TD Ameritrade's doing, but they're also experimenting. Soon to be Schwab, yeah, soon to be Schwab. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Well, they themselves. See what happens with that. Right? Yeah, that should be a fun integration play. <laughs> wow. <laughs> They, they're right, right now, like, I mean, Schwab and, and uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, JP Morgan, they, they all have voice offering on Alexa. And it's just a simple sort of flash briefings and retrieve market updates, like one year. And, and then I think the way they envision voice being used on the, on the smart speaker anyways, is just like when you're kind of just out the door, like, you know, and you're just preparing breakfast or whatever, you just want to get like a quick update. And so you just, or get like a flash briefing by some, but it's almost like a podcast, right? While yeah. you're like waiting. It's kind of like a, while you're in trance and you want to interact with your one of these institutions that's kind of the use case mm-hmm. whereas i think td ameritrade some of the use cases they have is like they actually believe that this is going to be the major platform where they're going to substitute mobile and start use start using smart smart speaker to actually conduct transactions yeah transactions such. an interesting one i can i can figure money movements right i can figure yeah. like i'll contribute this much to my 401 well in that case ira or 520 or whatever you guys have so many bloody i have a cfp yeah, down there but yes like 16 <laughs> different retirement accounts or something like that i can't keep them all straight <laughs> and also employer sponsored so let's stick with ira or roth ira for now so i can totally see the like you know especially if they have data on like that's the only account you know max out my roth ira please max out my roth ira for this year Ding, done, right? I can totally mm-hmm. see that. The When it comes in, you know, if you've got a guided portfolio or one of the robo-advisor offerings they have, I totally see that as being like, yeah, we just do this. Do you want us to invest in your portfolio? Yeah, no problem. But when it comes down to like individual stock trading, I mean, right. I don't know. Even I'm reticent to that because <laughs> especially just market dynamics, right? Like, okay, this by default, do they all go in at market, right? Or do I name a price? Okay, so I'm gonna name a price. Do you tell me if it gets filled or not? Like, how is this gonna work, right? Like, I don't get it. So, I mean, it's it's interesting. Day traders aren't gonna use it. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I'm interesting because I know I believe yeah. they have some of the internal teams, right, where they're, you know, more of a B2B look where yeah. maybe we're going to use it on our desk. We have a trading floor and we want to be able to pull up orders on the screen that, and I want to use my voice for it rather than having to use my computer. It's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, how do they get past the private, I mean, the privacy issue surrounding this, right? Because, I mean, we all yeah. know. People don't know that yet. And voice authentication is not reliable. I mean, really? I mean, given the entire exposure of the, you know, sweatshops of people basically doing, uh, analyzing these voice response things that the stories that came out a couple months ago uh, where people found that, oh no, people are actually listening to Alexa and, and confirming yeah. accuracy. Like yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, yeah and, and I think, you know, voice can be mimicked and, yeah. and I, I've actually seen a demo by these uh, students, I believe they were at U of T where they developed these signals that can actually just get a voice, a virtual assistant to perceive something. Oh yeah. The, the sub, the sub uh, auditory ones where the yeah, microphone yeah. picks it up. Yeah. Yeah. There was a case, Kara was talking about that as, um, Putting it on commercial, there was a some auditory thing that actually triggered a triggered a, the smart speakers in the house. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, it's so I in you know my paranoid world, I basically do have all three, but they all stay in the kitchen, right? Like they are in one room, they are in one room, and there's another one downstairs for for noise for for glass breaking and whatever, and yeah. you know for the, the, the stuff. But that is it. Like they're not in the bedroom, they're not in the living room, they're not in the dining area. They're far. You know, they can probably hear further than I think, but nevertheless, you know, there is there is. Your common question about this. Okay, great. Are you going to put an Alexa speaker in your bedroom? And she's like, are you kidding me? God knows. Especially if your name's close to that. <laughs> I get into that. Well, but, well, I live yeah. in, a part, in an apartment in New York. So like anywhere I put it, oh, it's so, basically my bedroom. Yeah, so, <laughs> so. so even, even in the corner, you're like five feet away from it. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this. I think last year there was like this funny case of Alexa to people just come down to the living room and they just notice their Alexa in the middle of the night, just hysterically, it was just start laughing. And it was- That's right, what was that? It, I, was... I, it, was, it, when it wasn't even like like a robotic laugh. It was like, it wasn't even a normal cheerful laugh. It was like an evil sort of sinister yeah, laugh. Yeah, like, yeah. like they, I, don't, I have no idea where that came from. I can Google that because there's a really good explanation as to why that happened. And they can't remember what it was. It was picking up some sort of ambient noise that sounded like Alexa laugh. Like it right. was like, it was something that, something to that effect, which I just triggered. But yeah, so, so yeah, here's a question for you. How fun is it to integrate this stuff on the back end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the larger firms are obviously heavily dependent on extremely good innovation teams to be able to make sure the pipes are, are clean and ready to go. Because at the end of the day, when I look at it and from my experience in the back office is it's more, you have the data sitting there. Well, what, is it good? Is it clean? What, what am I, no, where is it going? No. <laughs> right. So <laughs> I think there, you know, a lot of integrations have been kind of pushed to the forefront to say, look, we need to get all this kind of put together in order to deliver best experience in the front end. Cause at the end of the day, right. You want the client to be happy with your product and you want to be able to, you know, nudge them or, or give out the best advice you can or the best yeah. experience. It's, it's difficult if on the backside, you're kind of using a bunch of robotics to push data here and there, and it needs to be more seamless and through APIs, but the firms are there. It's just for the larger institutions on the banking side, it takes a while. And, and it's yeah. hard to say, well, how is this going to benefit us? Can we just put a little bandaid on it for a little bit? And then how far? Which is, all which is how go. they got into the situation in the first place. So, you know, I often think to myself, if time travel existed, the first thing that would happen is that the people in charge of cleaning up data in today's world would basically travel back in time and punch the people who didn't take care of the data in the face. Because <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Like, why would you do it this way? Right? right. Like, everything was a band aid. So, yeah, it's uh, you can <laughs> sooner or later the deck's gonna burst. Yeah. What are you gonna do? And I think you see in the U.S. particularly with this kind of race, right? You, you want to get there as fast as you a great can, thing. and and yeah. it's great. And then. For the larger institutions that rely heavily on legacy systems, it's not that easy for them, as everyone knows. So it takes no. a lot longer time to kind of be able to implement these. And 
which is the exciting part from our standpoint is we get to research this and watch neobanks or, you know, mm. robo advisors and see what they do. And then I look back at my old bank for custody. And I'm like, wow, that's quite different. <laughs> yeah, um, no and, and, you know, the journey that they'll have to take to kind of get there is, is exciting for, yep. for a lot of individuals. I mean, it's interesting. I almost find that a lot of these, if they play their cards right, a lot of these newer ones have not only a current strategic advantage in terms of clean data sets and our proper architecture, but possibly a future one, right? Because, you know, for decades, no one actually realizing the data was actually worth something. You now have, from day one, you have a clean set, right? Like where, where does, that doesn't just pay you today, that pays you for decades going forward versus everybody else trying to clean up the yeah. old stuff, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we were speaking with an asset manager um, yesterday and a lot of that is, you know, what kind of products do I want to build? Well, I need to know what my advisors are doing and and what kind of plans are they kind of customizing on top of my products to deliver what the you know their end client needs yeah. if i can collect that all back and have you know a great team of analysts and experts go through it and be able to pull out some insights i think that's in a competitive advantage now mm-hmm. to get there you need that bi-directional data communication, yep. which is very challenging. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I've had these conversations with larger or even mid-sized institutions. It's like, yeah, all these things are awesome. Is your data clean? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. So let's not even start there. Like, you know, go on a several-year quest to actually clean up your mess. Yeah, and that's why I think TD and RBC are sort of the leaders in, as far as Canadian banking goes at this digital transformation yep. initiatives that they're doing. We talked a little bit about this earlier. RBC has like a team of, I think, 100 to 200 people just in the data analytics team, a large portion of whom are like data scientists and data engineers just responsible for working with the different lines of business to mm. pull in and clean and sanitize that data. Man, so, I would love to take them for drinks and see them just gripe about their lives. You, 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 should, you should invite someone on. I mean, there I, you I, go, I, open I, invitation. If you're, uh, if you're a data cleanser or <laughs> specialist, I will, I will buy drinks, at least one or two. Just and to have hear, a podcast. Just have a podcast, <laughs> just, to, just to hear you talk about how much your life sucks. Okay. And then get fired for it. Yeah, well, it's, it'll all be anonymous. <laughs> We'll anonymize your voice. It's fine. <laughs> I wonder if, if it's just sort of RBC and TD sort of taking, and, and to some extent CIBC sort of being the leaders at this space because they have the resources to do it, or is it because some of the other banks like Scotia and uh, BMO and or maybe even National Bank don't mm-hmm. have didn't have best practices when they were starting out in the first mm-hmm. place? So I also wonder just how much of this is due to their degree of exposure to the U.S. market, right? Like RBC's been in custody for quite a while. TD's most definitely been in custody for quite a while. They've seen these things emerge probably sooner than some of the other Canadian banks that have, that existed. I mean, you know, BMO's there in a meaningful way through Harris. CIBC was there in the world market section. I mean, they all have exposure there, but I feel like those, the two leaders are probably the two most exposed to this type of thing, right? So Yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Yeah, you have to wonder how much best practice really trickles down because, simply because they're actually in, in, in the U.S. Yeah, it's, it's funny when I go to conferences down there and they're like, yeah. oh, so you're up there. Do you clear your, your trades through like TD or RBC? I just like start laughing. I'm like, you don't understand how different the world is. Those those companies that are friendly to you yeah. and help you out there will step on my throat if they had a choice. <laughs> right? Like it is what it is. But yeah, it's it's it's, it's like night and day. It's, I always I often just boggles the mind when I go down there and I see their logos servicing independence down there. It's just, I literally have stepped through the looking glass and I'm on the other side at this point. It's bizarre. Yeah. Well, I wonder if they'll take that and disrupt themselves a little bit and try and kind of further Canadian market. Now me coming from a US focus. Without me saying no, 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 no. It's just not, when you have an oligopoly and you have the political vote that you have, you just continue to run seek. That's all yeah. that happens. So what we talked about if, if them sort of boring best practice from the US, but I think most of it where it's coming from is just them being, getting scared from what they're seeing from on the FinTech side. 
in the UK and obviously in the US as well. Yeah. And well, they're fighting open banking tooth and nail. Yeah. Yeah. Which is unfortunate from to see they, some of their innovation labs, I'm sure, can put together excellent tools to be able to leverage open banking and. You know, yeah. like we mentioned earlier, you don't you can you don't have to compete. You can be compatible. Well, I have two statements to that. One is we a have a legal right to that data already because there are privacy laws that actually uh, or a digital um, Pepita, what's it called, the personal like, electronic whatever it is that basically yeah, yeah. yeah gives me the right to request my information at any time within a with and be delivered in a reasonable format within a reasonable amount of time. And they just tend to play. You know, when they hear that, they just put their fingers in their ears and go la 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 la. <laughs> like I'm not listening. And the second point I make is it's it's the first mover advantage paradigm right like imagine one of these guys had a secret skunk works and suddenly announces Ta-da, open banking here's the api knock yeah. yourself out build over top of us how many fintechs would race to integrate how many new ones would basically go up there and how much would the line of revenue be for if they were to be able to create a banking as a service platform yeah. like we're seeing other players in the world yeah. do right like you're gonna get locked in you're gonna you know these companies aren't gonna necessarily turn around oh our, you know this company did it that company just launched that's eh, the same thing why am i gonna move Right? right, like I just think there's a huge play there, and if one of you is smart enough, you will actually take it. <laughs> yeah. So I actually work for uh, the innovation team at RBC, and they're like full aware of like what's what's on the horizon. I mean, oh. part of my job was to profile all the fintechs that could be potential disruptors, and and to to talk about like to make the exec senior executives aware of open banking and how, how this could pose a threat. So oftentimes, uh, a lot of senior leaders would notice like a Revolut or like a Monza or Coho. Yeah. In Revolut, especially because they they recently seven the million US. depositors were in the world. Yeah. Like, I think that was a stat. I that was the last time I looked. That's higher than that now, and I think Beemo's got eight. Yeah, and Revolut's been around for three and a half years. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And, <laughs> and you know, I mean, like I never had direct exposure to the, the, the guys at completely at the top, but I could tell the instructions would trickle down where people just want to know about this stuff right then and there, and we'd be doing all the analysis on what yeah. it is and why it is and stuff. So and then I mean, what do they do with it? These are your clients. I shouldn't beat up it, on them entirely. It's it's, <laughs> it's it's funny, you know, when you, when you mention like they're not open to these sort of newer practices that disrupt their business. And that might be the case, but working, being siloed and kind of like in an innovation team where you're trying to be forward thinking and looking yeah. at all this emerging tech and never really got that sense for me was like, oh, this is coming and we have to be a part of this. Maybe eventually when these strategy decks made it to the top, maybe maybe at some point they decided, you know, we need to sort of protect yeah. our business. Well, I'm I, not sure, but. I have um, someone coming on the podcast talking about the unique special, the unique challenge of trying to run an innovation team within a traditional larger company. Right, right. However, I will say this much, it was Vanguard, so therefore not as triple, <laughs> just not as tricky yeah. as, you know, a Canadian bank, which is like, yeah. what do you mean things aren't going to be the same forever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I think it's a very exciting area for, for banking is that innovation lab. I've seen some very interesting and great solutions come out of that and it doesn't have to be a you know a win all it's the politics that are just crushing right, right. like i mean the bureaucratic, I, I mean it's yeah. big firms there's a lot to to go on there yeah. but i think a lot of younger individuals create some really great opportunities to yeah. to improve especially looking at a back office and operational efficiency yeah. we talked earlier about cutting costs you can do a lot of work on the innovation side to cut costs that you you know no one on the outside is actually going to see. Yeah, but and, I'll tell you this much: I will put money that a major major fintech in this country and others comes out of those innovation labs because they were yep. frustrated yep, they at couldn't the current get company to get anything done. So, right. um, you know what? That is absolutely a breeding ground for brilliant ideas. The question is: Are they ever going to be smart enough to capitalize them or 
I mean, I think we've seen a lot of the, you know, fintech or just the product offerings that we have is a lot on in-house. They grew in-house out of some sort of financial advisor firm. They want, they needed something. They needed to get something done. They built their own solution for it. And then it becomes attractive from others. It doesn't have to always come from a big bank or come from, you know, a product leading side. It comes from someone who's just being innovative. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a unique perspective being affiliated with IPC, therefore IG, therefore Power Corporation and seeing like the both sides of it. See, talking to people at Portage with all the investments they made and, you know, well, simple being the big one in Canada. And then hearing the advisor side gripe about what they perceive as massive competition from these and, you know, saying, well, first off, you got to respect the company for being willing to disrupt their traditional business lines yeah. like that. Yeah. It's like yeah. stand up and applaud them for that. And then I also say, well, if you see a robo advisor's competition, you're doing something wrong. Right. <laughs> that's just that's just my view of the world. So we definitely covered a lot of ground and went a lot of places. But before we wrap up, I've got three questions I ask everybody. And this was an interesting one because this wasn't specifically one talk. We just kind of, this is more like a conversation only have for drinks. So that was nice. And I'm not an alcoholic. I mentioned drinks a lot lately, <laughs> but it's not. That's barely drink. He doesn't have a drink in front of him. So no, right. I don't. No, I don't. That was uh, my buddy Preet's podcast. He does scotch every time. So uh, first question for each of you. If you had one wish for something you can change in the industry or the company you're working with or whatever it might be, what would it be? This is a hard question because I know people I work with are watching. So I'll let Neil answer this one if that's okay. Well, you can give me the real answer afterwards. (laughs) You can give me the politically correct answer now, but continue. Neil, go for it. You're on the spot. I think for my myself maybe taking a little step back but i think it's around financial literacy mm-hmm. i think there's a lot the industry can do to improve that i think the technology has been great and you're democratizing yeah. investing so it's getting to more of a mass market but i still think that's great for you know investing in your future but i also think there's even a, a greater need for just in educating individuals on the basics of finance that yeah. a lot don't have. So I, I would like to see the industry kind of continually, There, I think it's obviously trending that way, but continually being able to educate the individuals who are using your applications yeah. or, or banking food. Coming from a guy from the country with the most complex tax code in the history of mankind. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, you'll be happy to know that uh, financial literacy is actually one of the top wishes on this show when we uh, ask that question. Really? Yeah, it's right up there. That's good to know. Now you're on the spot. Why? Oh, Jesus. Um, well, I think like working for a big organization and being a subsidiary part of a larger organization, I think a lot of it, it's really difficult to undertake a digital transformation initiative internally to get like all your systems sort of integrated and, and polished and, and presented in a way where sort of everyone's using them at the same time. So that's that's as far as I'll say as what I change about my own company mm-hmm. and my Fixing the hard stuff. Okay. Just just like <laughs> as, as someone, you know, just yeah. who's who re- recently joined and just getting on board and figuring everything out and is was uh, somewhat challenging. So um and I think every every company I've worked for and they've traditionally been like larger firms like you know part of Fortune 500 and so mm-hmm. that, I've always had this difficulty so so that's one sort of wish that I, I, I have for, for okay. everybody I work with. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna change the second question a little bit usually it's the, what's been the biggest challenge in the company to where it is today but you guys are a bit of a different perspective so I'll say what's been the what's the biggest challenge you encounter day to day in your jobs when dealing with these large corporations and you can make this a positive about how you transform again oh, you can start with that one <laughs> I would say so. The hardest part is it's not so much the large corporations that we you continually work with. We also work with the vendors as well. And I think the hardest part is just dissecting the the sales pitch. Like really, mm. what do you really do? Yeah. And because yeah. our, our our clients want to know, and we want to present it in the, in the most fair light, right? So and it doesn't matter to what extent we go to. Like we'll have you fill out extremely detailed sort of RFIs and, yeah. and whatnot, and and conduct demos with you. And so sort of everyone just flat out comes out and says we do everything. Yeah. And even though that's not really the case. And I think part of the struggle is we're talking to these really young startups in some cases, and 
they think that they will eventually build what you ask them to do, even though they can't do it right now. So yeah. I think the, the difficult role is, is being an analyst and, and a thought leader in this space is having the intuition to be able to interpret kind of the being able to separate the the facts from the, the sales pitch. What can you actually show me today versus what do you, <laughs> right. what do you, what do you but, think you can but code? You know, yeah. here's the funny part. Like you go, you go to their websites and you'll scroll through the whole damn thing and you still don't know what the hell these guys do. Oh, like, I know. And, I mean, some of that's by design, right? Some of them are specifically, you know, if they're B2C with a, B2C, with a B2B component, a lot of times they're trying not to look like the thing that they do. They're trying to do a lifestyle pitch, right? Like, yeah. It was a, I think it was Ladder Life was on recently. I said, you guys basically don't even have, like, you don't, I can't tell you're selling me insurance, right? Like, it's it's that focused on lifestyle versus insurance that I actually, at first glance, wouldn't, glance, wouldn't even realize it, right? Yeah. And you can imagine the difficulty in trying to turn around that and offer that as a B2B service, but a B2C service. B2B, again, B2B service. <laughs> but yeah, I trust me, I know. It's like, oh yeah, we can do that. Like, I don't care if you can do that. Are you doing it? <laughs> and of course, nothing survives until you're under live fire, right? So you never really discover that until you're like, okay, let's integrate. Why do you mean that code's not done? <laughs> right, right. What do you mean you need two weeks, which is now mechanical rabbit that'll take a month. All right, Neil, you're on the spot. Yeah, so I think I, mean, a lot, I, I agreed a lot <laughs> with a lot there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll take the financial institution side. I think these large firms, very complex yeah. organizations, sometimes it can be challenging to get the right people to dive into exactly what we yeah. need. Um, I think, you know, especially from an FI side, we get very in depth into what they do, but a lot of times we need the bigger, you know, higher picture, you know, the bigger picture on what we, you know, what is going on in the market, what is going on, what is their direction? Um, so sometimes that can be challenging. You get passed around emails all day long where it's just, yeah. who, who's the responsible party here? I would love to chat with them. Mm. So that's kind of both sides of it. <laughs> oh, bureaucracy. Yes. It's, it's kind of funny. You kind of have tackled another like common answer to this question, but from a different angle. And the frustration in just about every fintech I talk to, in personal experience as well, trying to sell on a B2B play mm -hmm. is the sales cycles. Like they yes. will literally kill you. Like, I mean, you're talking about fast moving young companies that maybe aren't that well capitalized, but they've got something good. They've got something really good and you're interested in it. And it's going to take the same conversation being had over the course of 36 yeah. to 48 months yeah. to get a contract. And mm -hmm. it's like they, they might not be there by then, right? Yeah. And, and, and even dedicating the resources to go through that will kill you. No, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The, that's the thing is that they're used to dealing with, you know, the SAPs of the world, right? Or the, yeah. or the sales forces of the world who can basically go through these onboarding processes yeah, like they're it. nothing, right? Yeah. And then you ask a team of like 12 people to go through a process that the team alone to fill this out would take, would take 12 people. Yeah. And they're techies. Like, Good luck to you. Yeah. Right? yeah. And like I said, there's a grand total of two podcast guests, well, one podcast guest and one's going to be coming that have actually have actually seen sell into a major financial institution in the first year of life. The rest of them, not even close. Right. And in fact, in talking to a um, one of the VCs about this grape, he uh, started laughing. He goes, the number of companies we've had pivot away from B2B because of this very reason. And I have to think. I understand the difficulty on both sides, but the lost opportunity because of the way in which they move so slowly is enormous. I also understand that you're also dealing with structures and companies that aren't designed or incentivized to move that way. So last question for you, this is hopefully easier. No, no one gets thrown under the bus for this one. Uh, <laughs> what excites you the most about what you're working on and gets you up every morning to keep doing what you're doing? Well, that was stuff as well, because, um, it's just so You're much. You're going to throw some of the bus for this one? No, uh, no, no. no. <laughs> um, I think the thing that excites me the most, well, so I, I'm more on the front end side of things and I'm looking at emerging mm -hmm. tech. And I think I always have a habit of st stepping back and seeing like the sort of the, the big picture here and sort of not getting always bogged down into the sort of the details of the project that I'm dealing with at the moment. And, and I'm sort of able to see the 
trajectory of where the technology is headed by sort of looking at real live examples, working with like live vendors and implementations with like financial institutions and actually seeing, okay, you know, voices actually went from here to there, or like AR is being used for data visualization. I, this is mm-hmm. actually a real use case at this company, or, you know, they built uh, a, a chatbot that integrates with 200 different functions of the call center. So actually starting to see uh, the tech you've been hearing about, like yeah. um, five years ago, starting to play out and actually become integrated and commercialized in a way is is, is always very exciting for me to say. And, I, and having a front seat at that, at this role is um, is probably the, the most rewarding thing. I, I do love seeing all the, I do get super excited when I see things have been talked about for a long time actually yeah. happening. It's like, finally. Right. And, uh, well, well, so here's the interesting thing as well. So, I mean, everyone knows about, well, not everyone, but a lot of people know about the Gartner hype cycle, right? Like, it's yeah. a, uh, <laughs> You're the magic quadrant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the reason they call it a hype cycle is because when, the, when you hear of a technology and everyone just is just talking about it, it goes up this like yeah, uh, massive uh, curve. This, this peak, right? And then they have what they call the trough of disillusionment where it just sort of just Kind of like crypto drops. right now. Yeah, exactly. When yeah. you're just like, you talk about it and there's all this hype, like VR, everyone's like, oh, VR's coming, VR gaming, VR this, VR that. And then you start to realize, you start to, there's a lot of vendors in the space and you start to realize they can't really do all that much yet. And then yeah. there's sort of this tr- adjustment period where you realize that, okay, this still needs a little bit more time. Yeah. It's not there yet. And AR has kind of hit that already. Exactly. And like the response to Magic Leap's capabilities already. It's just like, do you realize this isn't fully done yet? Exactly. Right? Like, you got to give them time. But eventually, like, you know, once people realize it's not the next big thing, yeah. after a few years, you're like, okay, there's some use cases that are starting to pop up. The technology is yeah. becoming more advanced. People are becoming more adept to this. Yeah. And so we're like, part of this role is like me starting to see the aftermath of the trough of disillusionment. It's like, yeah. Is this technology sort of becoming realized? Well, let's not forget the internet went through that as well, right? Like the exactly. dot-com bubble, right? And there's oh, an yeah. argument that says that these bubbles are tr- or, or hype cycles are incredibly valuable because they pull people into the ecosystem, right? Yeah. And then right. now they're invested, right? And then when the hype cycle dies off, yeah, a lot of people leave, but the rest who stay behind are still fully invested. Mm-hmm. Right. have to make something out of it. So yeah. you have more people involved than would have been otherwise <laughs> without the hype cycle. Yeah. And then out of that, you get the you get the growth of these entities that actually wouldn't have existed if not for that boom that happened back right. then. Right? Yeah. So you know, as much as we're in slightly thawing deep cold winter uh, for the crypto cycle right now, I think we still, we're starting to see some interesting use cases. Uh, the one that aired today was Utrust, who actually does online payment processing for large companies uh, with crypto and does so very effectively, um, kind of the stripe of, of, of crypto. You know, you're starting to see these basic use cases actually finally coming to market. Oh my God, right. I can I can buy that soccer team's jersey with, with, with Bitcoin if I wanted to. Not that I would because of volatility in this country, but from other countries, I might. So yeah, so it's it's we see it play out over and over again. And I, I when I when I talk about these technologies and then and people like saying, well, well, you know, crypto's dead and all this other stuff. It's like, no, no, no. Look what happened with the internet. Just because a bunch of people got carried away, yeah, doesn't mean right. that it invalidates the usefulness of this of this technology. It's just that you got carried away by the future and then wanted the future to be the present, and the present didn't equal the future, and you got disappointed, so the money <laughs> went down. But now the future's here, and yeah. guess what? Now you're, you know, or it's on its way. So it is what it is. You just got to get there in the fullness of time. But good point. Neil, you're on the spot. What yeah, excites you? I think pretty simply it's being able to be intellectually curious about everything in our space. And every day you come in, what gets me up is I get to learn something new. Yeah. I mean, we get to chat here for an hour or so and get to learn a lot of bounce different ideas. And for that, you know, I get to take that back and put a lot more work and research into it and then yeah. produce a report and continually talk about it. It's really exciting. And yeah. and at the end of the day, it's fun to do and intellectually stimulating. So that's it. It's That's what you want to do for As someone for with an challenge. infinite level of intellectual curiosity, I, uh, <laughs> I fully understand where you're coming from. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
So that was my interview with Neil and Awad of Sant. Uh, that was not a typical conversation. It was almost more of a roundtable, but I think we covered a lot of really interesting topics, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, I'm Jason Pereira, and please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.